Christ, Paul's ministry in Christ, and greetings in Christ. Okay, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to wave to those that are waving at the door. Um, <laughs> Father, we, as we come before your word, we just want to tell you that we adore you, and we thank you for how you've spoken to us these past eight weeks, and uh, you've been so good to us. We thank you for your wisdom in the gospel. I thank you for bringing everyone here today. And if any more are coming, please, please bring them safely. And uh, we just ask you, Lord, by that wisdom of yours, if you would open up your word to us by your Holy Spirit and enable us to see you clearly this morning. We trust in you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, the first section of our study is still connected with last chapter as Paul is speaking about these disputable matters. So you're not out of that yet. But we covered verse 1 last week. And I'm still going to list it up here, though, with verses 2 and 3. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So as we've spoken before about being living sacrifices and denying ourselves, that's in view once more. And we are to consider others first, as it says here in verse 2, to help them for their spiritual good. Not to condescend to their every wish, but to seek to serve them for their best. And verse 3 gives us our pattern in Jesus. Though worthy you know, of all adoration and glory, he did not seek to please himself, but bore all reproach and rebuke that came his way um, instead of choosing an easier, easier path for himself as we, as we know he could have. And the scripture referenced in verse 3 is from Psalm 69, and it says, For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Um, and, and this verse was referenced, if you'll recall, after Jesus cleansed the temple. And so the thought is that Christ sought to please his father first rather than himself, and we in turn are to follow in his ways. Mark 10:45 says, For the, even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we, in turn, are to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, verse 4. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. It sounds a little different today. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul had just, remember, quoted this scripture in Psalm 69. And now he reminds us that all scripture is here to teach us. So every part of it has something to say to us. And it all points to Jesus. Um, and Paul just pointed, pointed the Romans to Christ in not pleasing himself. And this written in the past here is Paul's reference to the Old Testament. 
uh, which he's been using, as you recall, throughout the whole book of Romans to teach these Roman believers about Jesus. And scripture gives us the endurance and the encouragement that we need to live this life of faith, this life that God has called us to, um, you know, to endure when denying ourselves becomes very difficult, um, to endure when every trial comes our way, like the one I'm expecting now that Rose has told me a trial is coming my way. But (laughs) in regards to the endurance and encouragement, Hod says that the scriptures produce it. That's that's what that's what the scriptures do for us, and that's just a tiny bit different than how Mr. Keller describes it. I think, but um, but but I know that's been true in my life. And as we're encouraged in Christ by God's word, hope builds up inside us. And hope, not as a wish, but as a firm reality, is a theme that Paul comes back to in about six verses. And we receive this hope as the Holy Spirit reveals God's precious promises for us, uh, the ones that he holds out to us in his word, and it gives us hope to endure. Verses 5 and 6, they've been called a prayer of Paul. I think it more so looks like a benediction, but I'm going to go with what, the, what everyone else says. And so in it we can see that Paul is still thinking of the unity of the believers in the Roman church. He's praying for a spirit of unity. Um, or as the New King James says, uh, to be like-minded or or having the same attitude of mind in the NIV. And when I was reading through that, I initially thought that that was speaking to the unity unity as being based on truth, right? Since he had just spoke about the scriptures, because that seemed more natural to me. And in Paul's letter to the churches, we know uh, how much he comes against false doctrine and false teachers. So that's what I was thinking. But it's... It's supposed to refer back to like 1216, where it speaks of harmony. Um, And it means either the unity of Christian virtues, right? Or uh, the harmony of feeling, which does not mean having the same opinion as others, but simply that love overrules in the body of Christ. So, and Paul prays that God would grant the Romans this unity as you follow Christ Jesus. Um, In this context, that we're in not pleasing yourselves. Um, The Romans may not agree on everything, but they can be united in love for one another and seek to please each other in following Christ. So the one heart and mouth is also translated one mind and one mouth, which Keller says most likely means corporate worship, singing and praying together. So glorifying, oops, where am I? Whoa glorifying God um, as one body of believers. And that's the goal of unity, is to bring glory to God. That's what it's going to be like in heaven when we're all worshiping together as one body. And all these differences, these little differences are put aside. So, moving on. Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. There we have the glory of God again, um, bringing glory to God and that's our word, remember, proslambano from last week. So Jesus has welcomed you, right? He's accepted you. Now receive each other. And what is the objective again? The worship of God, the glorifying of God. Okay, go to verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. 
and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. And that servant there is minister. It means minister. So when Jesus came, um, it was first to the Jews to fulfill the promises. And God had promised to send the Messiah. And there he was, you know, in their midst. And you may recall, he said to the Gentile woman in Matthew 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So he fulfilled the promises in every way, uh, but also the prophecies that God's salvation would extend to the Gentiles through the gospel, that they would receive salvation and they would glorify God for his mercy and worship him. And this quote uh, in verse 9 is from 2 Samuel uh, 2.20. And Paul goes on to quote three more Old Testament passages, and I'm I'm not going to read them, but um, in order to show, you know, that the Gentiles are part of God's salvation program. So they, they were going to be worshipers of, of Yahweh, too. Um, we see them here rejoicing and being joyful with God's people, the Jews, in verse 10. They will praise the Lord along with all the peoples extolling and worshiping him in verse 11. And in verse 12, the Gentiles will hope in Jesus, and that's the root of Jesse's Jesus, who will rule the nations. And so this is, there's a picture here of just heavy worship, isn't there, and joy. Um, in the body of Christ, there's to be no more divisions between Jews and Gentiles. All the nations will worship God in Christ. Uh, God had promised this beforehand in his word, yet it was hidden. Um, it was a mystery and that the Gentiles would, see, would receive salvation by faith through the gospel. And Paul references this ministry um, in our closing doxology today, which I won't bring up again, but just watch for it. You'll, you'll see that there. Um, but now the mystery's been revealed. Um, remember, mysteries were things that were previously hidden, but now, you know, have been revealed. So the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, share in the promise of Jesus. Um, okay, and Paul ends with this prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is one of those verses that you can put on your closing line of your email. You know, this is a good one to encourage. Um, so our God is the God of hope. He is the author of hope, and um, he's the God of our promises. That's how the um, Ethiopic version said, what the Ethiopic version says here, because that's what our hope is built on, is God's promises um, in Christ. And note the phrase here, as you trust in him, and in the English Standard Version, in believing. This is a great reminder that faith is needed so that we may have the joy and the peace and we may overflow with hope or abound in hope. And that word is superabound in the power of the Holy Spirit. So superabounding in hope. Isn't that a great picture for all of us? Um, so our principle for this first section is this. Believers who deny themselves for others promote unity and bring glory to God. There's just a lot in that first <laughs> section. <laughs> Believers who deny themselves for others promote unity and bring glory to God. Not that unity is always accomplished. We know, we know that it isn't, but... But, but God is glorified when believers fulfill the law of love, just as Christ denied himself. And just a reminder, Paul is still on this topic of 
debatable issues so so we remember where where we still are you know at my at my church in seattle i was in charge of the widows ministry and they had determined to have this brunch to the uh, to, to the widows for the widows and then also as an outreach to any widows that were in the community and everybody was supposed to invite people to it and i enlisted the help of two widows to organize it and i love them both I'm just going to call them Betty and Wilma, you know, because actually they kind of look like <laughs> Betty, you know, Betty and Wilma. But well, in the early stages, I hope that they never hear this, by the way, I just saying. Um, at the early stages of planning, there was a little rift between them because Wilma wanted to bring a photographer in so that the widows could take their picture with our pastor as kind of like a special memento of the of the uh, event. Um, Betty thought that this was glorifying our pastor and it wasn't glorifying Jesus. So she came out strongly against it. Well, Wilma would not back down. And there was a lot of criticism and they were judging each other. And each one of them thought they were right and pleasing God in their decision and what they were doing. And I met with each of them separately and shared some scripture about uh, submitting to one another, but neither of them would budge. And so see how ineffective I was <laughs> as a women's ministry director. Thank you. I'm so glad we have Rose. But um, now I ended up making the decision not to do the pictures, yet still the news of the conflict kind of got out, people in the church taking sides, and actually some of the elders came to meet with me about the situation. And Betty, now, Betty, after the picture was canceled, she did write a note to Wilma, kind of apologizing for her tone, you know, and, but Wilma did not reciprocate at all. And so on the day of the event, they both still served, but they avoided each other like the plague. And it was just a tense situation for the hundred women that attended this event. And even, even Betty was to, she gave a little, um, a little message and she was just crying during the whole thing. I mean, it was a cloud just was really over the whole event. So after I was done cleaning up, I just sat in my office and cried because not only had an opportunity been lost to witness to people within the community, but just sorrow over the ugliness of the whole thing. So this one small, inconsequential matter affected my life, the life of those in the body of Christ. Um, you know, the widows that came, their lives, I mean, were miserable during the whole thing. How might have it have been different if at the very first disagreement, one of them would have said, whatever you would like to do, you know. And within a few years, Wilma died of cancer. And I couldn't help but wonder you know, what regrets there were for both of them, you know, before she died. But unity brings glory to God, and it furthers the gospel. So maybe we've never experienced conflict like, like that, and I hope not. But um, it might be good to ask ourselves some questions. Most of the time, who do we try to please first, ourselves or others? What can we do to promote unity in Christ in our church or with neighbors who are believers but may not agree with us on, on debatable issues? Is there someone who's currently making your life challenging over a trivial matter? And will you seek to please them? And how does the truth that Jesus came not to please himself, not to be served, but to serve, change the way you treat your family, the people at work, or your neighbors? Okay, our second section, Paul's ministry in Christ. I did cut a lot of scripture out, but it <laughs> I felt like everything was so important. Um, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, 
He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified for the, by, by the Holy Spirit. So as, as mentioned uh, in the intro, Paul, or in our very first session, Paul didn't start this church in Rome. And we know that Paul had heard good reports about them. Remember, he had said their faith was being, you know, talked about all over the, all over the world, which really meant the, the Roman Empire. So he's already commended them. And he does so again by telling them in verse 14 that he knows that they are competent, um, they're adept, they understand the gospel, and they can teach each other. Nevertheless, Paul has been bold when he has, he's been pleading with them, you know, and, and recently here is not to judge each other and to bear with each other. And it seems as though he kind of apologizes for his tone, which he recognizes as forceful, and he knows this, but, you know, reminders are good. Reminders are good for all of us. I mean, how many of you have read through Romans again, or before, and you're here back in Romans again? We need reminders, too, of these precious, precious truths. So Paul goes on to explain his work assignment here. His, this is his calling. God gave Paul the authority in Christ to be a minister of the Gentiles. And this word minister was frequently used um, as those who exercise the office of a priest. And Paul here is saying, he's, he's, he's not saying he's a priest, you know, because, you know, the priesthood, as we know, um, um, is, has been in Christ. <laughs> what am I trying to say, Rose? There is no longer, we don't, we're not offering up they were no longer offering up bloody sacrifices because Christ is the final sacrifice. That's what I'm trying to say. I just don't know how I'm saying it, how I was going to say it. But um, so one scholar says he's adopting the language of the Levitical temple worship. Okay, so that's just what he's doing here is adopting the language. He's giving us a picture. Um, so by saying his priestly duty is proclaiming the gospel, the Gentiles are his offering. They're being offered up to God uh, through Jesus Christ, and they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. For all offerings had to be, oh, here's sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All offerings had to be holy. They had to be set apart for God. And Paul is happy with his offering. Um, he says here, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. And he even says here, I've found reason for boasting. So all glory to God for, um, to Jesus for Paul's work. He was proud of his work um, through Christ to the Gentiles. And do you feel like, I mean, in looking at this, it seems as though Paul really enjoyed, you know, we know he really enjoyed his God-given God role, the joy of seeing people respond to the gospel and lives being transformed. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Um, okay, I'm ending there because I'm going to bring that last verse up a little later. Paul was saying Christ's done all this work, right? He's not going to take any credit for it. Uh, so he only boasts in Jesus as he did in verse 17. And when we look at Paul's background, I wonder if he always felt such an awe of what God was doing through him um, as he watched God working throughout, through the gospel. You know, he, was, he calls himself the chief, chief of sinners, and, um, and it must have been amazing that God could use, you know, knowing his past, this self-righteous, proud 
persecutor of believers in Jesus. So in looking at that, um, you know, there's great hope for any of us that God can use us if we look at Paul's background. So bringing the Gentiles to obedience here simply means that they believe the gospel. And the word obedience, as one lexicon states, literally means hearing under or listening from a subordinate position in which compliance with what is said is expected and attended. So hearing under. And the word and deed here are Paul's life and actions. And the power of signs and wonders um, that accompanied his ministry uh, were evidences of God's power, whether they were visual or in the effect that the gospel had on the minds of men. Um, And the power for his ministry, as we all know, is by the Spirit of God. Um, As Paul says, I won't speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished. John Gill says here, It was not by might or power of the preacher, nor merely by the power of signs and wonders, but by the powerful and efficacious grace of the Spirit of God, who took away the stony, stubborn, and disobedient heart, and gave them a heart of flesh, a tender, flexible, and obedient one. And Hodge says, Paul relied for success not on his own skill, but on the powerful demonstration of the Spirit. And by the Spirit's power, Paul had covered the territory um, from, he says here, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Okay. I think I'm supposed to move on now. He says, It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. So Paul hadn't come to Rome because, as we know, they... they, had already been reached with the gospel, right? And, and his ministry was always to be the first one to bring the gospel to, um, to a new place. So he says, but now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you passing through, while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Doesn't it sound like he's just looking for some refreshment? <laughs> He says, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. So Paul here is giving us his travel plans, and it's this. Um, Can you see that well? So remember, it was thought that he wrote this from Corinth. So he was going to go to Jerusalem to deliver, you know, a gift for them. And then he was going to go to Spain, number four, but he was going to drop by Rome on the way to Spain. So, you know, he had already been, he had already brought the gospel to the regions that he had previously talked about, and now he can visit the Romans, okay? So he's been longing for many years to visit. You'll probably remember in our introduction, he says, I long to see you and impart some spiritual gifts to you, um, but he's just going to be passing through on the way to Spain. And he hopes that they can assist him, and which could mean by prayer or fellowship, but it could also mean by financial support and, you know, travel arrangements and food and other things like that. 
So he had been supported by his home church in Antioch, but he might have been looking for a new home base since Spain was quite a ways away. So most believe that Paul never got to Spain because there are no records of him being there. So the thought is he only completed three missionary journeys. However, some do think that Paul could have been imprisoned twice on account of uh, two somewhat vague non-biblical records. So just to know that. Um, But Paul goes on in verses 26 through 29 to describe his plans to take this contribution that he had been collecting for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Um, So he's talking about his plan in in verses uh, 26 through 29 and tells how Macedonia and Achaia Achaia had helped out with that. Um, They were happy to contribute. And there's two full chapters which explain this whole um, gift that he's taking to them, and that's from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So if you, if you want to look at that a little more in depth. But um, this gift, while it was a service to the poor in Jerusalem, it also accomplished some other um, wonderful things. Um, one, or it was intended to accomplish a couple other things, which we know that it did. Um, it was an expression of brotherly love from the Gentile churches. Um, it was to make the Gentile churches aware of their spiritual indebtedness to Jerusalem, which we had mentioned in a previous lesson in Romans. Um, and it's also mentioned in verse 27 in this chapter. And it would help unite the Jewish and Gentile believers. Uh, and also in giving credence to, if, to Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, which may have been under suspicion by some of those who were in Rome. So it was a multifaceted um, gift that he was, uh, that he was bringing, uh, or it covered you know, a multitude of intentions, I should say. So Paul knew, though, that trouble could arise for him in Jerusalem. Uh, the unbelieving Jews really despised him, and so he asked for the Romans to join with him in prayer. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I might be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. So Paul's asking for safety from the unbelievers, that the gift would be favorably received. Um, And we know it was because Acts 21 tells us that it was and that he would go to Rome with joy. And notice he says, by God's will. And um, as we know, by God's will, he does get to Rome, but he gets to Rome as a prisoner. Um, On Paul's trip to Jerusalem, he would be arrested at the temple. And then following that would be a two-year imprisonment in, in Caesarea. And through an appeal made to be tried to Caesar, he came to Rome. Um, So he did get to Rome, but again, as a prisoner. So Paul had made his plans, but God had determined his steps. Uh, So the application for this section um, is believers fulfill God's calling by his power. And it could be callings as well, but believers fulfill God's calling by his power. You know, not everyone is called to do the work that Paul did in taking the gospel to the, to the Gentiles. And 
to those who haven't heard of Christ. Um, and Paul was an apostle, so obviously uh, he's just a little bit different than you and I. <laughs> you know, part of my ministry is making peanut butter sandwiches for nine-year-olds. Nine but one thing is similar. Whatever work God has called us to or works he has called us to do, however we're called to serve him, it will be accomplished by the power of his spirit. Um, Paul clearly understood that Christ was doing the work through him. Um, it wasn't his own skills. It wasn't his own wisdom, but God's power. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 through 5. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul recognized that for those who believed the gospel um, that he had preached, Faith in Christ was a work of God, and Paul was simply an instrument in God's hands, a weak one at that, and in fact, God can only use weak instruments, uh, those that depend upon him for his power. We can glean a few things from this section that might help us as we, like Paul, try to bring glory to God in our service for him, and I'm only going to list four of them due to time. Paul knew what his assignment was. You know, he knew he was supposed to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. So do we seek and submit to God's direction in ministry and follow his leading, not our own path, which may be easier? Oftentimes we make it easier. Um, secondly, Paul knew that he depended on the Holy Spirit's power. Only God can break down hardened hearts. Uh, are we, again, offering ourselves daily as living sacrifices to be used of God in whatever way he pleases by his power? Number three, Paul knew he could find endurance and encouragement and hope in the scriptures. That's actually not from this section, but I put it in here. So do we rely upon God's word when we grow battle-weary in service? Uh, have we neglected to go to our source of hope when we get discouraged in ministry? And number uh, four, Paul knew that prayer was vitally important in God's work. Paul urged them to pray in that last part there. And we see Paul praying for others too. Uh, have we overlooked asking others to pray for us specifically in our service to God? Do you ask others to pray for you when you teach Sunday school, before you visit a sick friend, as you plan to share the gospel with your hairdresser, before you make that phone call to someone Paul wasn't too prideful to ask for prayer. When we depend on God as Paul did, we fulfill our calling by his power. And we can say with Paul, therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. God will get the glory for his spirit doing the work. And God is still getting the glory through Paul's ministry as we're here today studying the book of Romans. Okay, so our final section is greetings in Christ. And in this final chapter, Paul sends his greetings and he asks the Romans to greet the believers in the Roman church for him. So some he commends and some he simply greets by name. And I know that you're really disappointed, but we're not going to go through this line by line. Okay, so <laughs> we could if you wanted to. I do have some backup notes. But um, Paul does first ask them to receive Phoebe in verses 1 and 2, who's bringing the letter. And he gives high, high praise and service. Uh, in her service to him. But I will, however, put up a few things about this. Um, in this first section, there is 26 people mentioned by name that he's greeting, 
plus the mention of family members, mother, brothers, sisters, and households. The race, of course, as we've spoken of, both Jews and Gentiles. The class, some were royal or high, high rank, you know, mo most I don't think we know too much about. Gender, eight or nine are women. Location, house churches are mentioned. And this, I thought, you know, is so, m makes it such a clear picture with all that, those details about food and stuff. You know, you could really see with the home churches how that could have been an issue. Um, and then the comments that Paul gives about these people. Fellow workers in Christ Jesus, risk their own necks. To whom I give thanks, my beloved, he says four times, worked hard for you, my fellow prisoners, outstanding among the apostles, fellow worker in Christ, approved in Christ, worked hard in the Lord, a choice man in the Lord. So many wonderful things did he have to say about these people. But after he greeted those in the church, he gives a warning about some deceivers who hadn't infiltrated the Roman church as of yet, but who might be coming their way. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. You know, I was kind of disheartened when I read F.F. F. Bruce's commentary because he says, it is impossible to be sure about the particular form of teaching which Paul's present warning is given. I mean, I want to know. Don't you want to know, you know, what we're supposed to be looking out for? But um, we know that there were some that were called Judaizers uh, who had been, you know, trying to teach believers in other areas to, that they needed to obey the law and they needed to be circumcised and stuff like that. But I didn't find any references that this is, that this is the, those that he is speaking of here. Um, but some things we can know about them. Um, they cause divisions. Um, they are teaching things that are contrary to doctrine, so contrary to the gospel. They're serving themselves, so they're out for gain. Um, they're deceiving through flattery and fine-sounding talk. They may be wonderful speakers, appear super nice and intelligent, you know, um, but Paul says avoid them. You know, he's not talking about that loving unity here on debatable issues. He's speaking of a separation uh, from doctrine that is very, very harmful, harmful to the Romans and would be harmful to us as well. But Paul, you know, ever the encourager says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Um, which is a marvelous reminder of the prophecy back in Genesis 3.15, uh, which speaks of Jesus and his defeat of Satan. So persevere, he's saying God is going to take care of this. Um, Keller advises that we can recognize these false teachers by measuring what they say against the gospel to see if they're aiming to serve themselves or, or if they give themselves to Christ. You know, there, there's a difference. Um, and he gives this statement, Satan is the great liar, and one of his weapons is divisive, self-absorbed teaching. But he has been, is being, and will be defeated. So then Paul goes, closes with greetings, and I suppose we could say it's like from his staff. Um, I put Phoebe down here, let's see here, um, from verses 1 and 2. So she brought the letter. She was a servant of the church and a helper to everyone, including Paul. Timothy, Paul's co-worker, and then he lists, you know, four others, um, 
and I don't know how to pronounce the name, so I'm not going to say it, but one was the writer of the letter, you know, so he, he had written the, the letter for Paul. Uh, Gaius, whose hospitality Paul enjoys, so I'm thinking, he, you know, he's probably stayed with him. Um, uh, Erastus, the city's director of public works, and Cortes. So one thing is very for for certain, I think when we can look at all these names, is that relationships were very important to Paul. Um, and he took time to remember and appreciate the many people who had served alongside him that were set apart, you know, for the gospel of God. So one principle I think that we can take from this is believers who serve the Lord are never forgotten by him. Believers who serve the Lord are never forgotten by him. Paul remembered the names and the work that these believers had done in helping him with the gospel. You know, my son Colin had a phrase when he was little, and we actually wrote it in his um, baby book, and it became kind of fodder for a lot of family ribbing throughout the years, but it was, what about me? What about me? He would constantly say that. So if we, if we told Chloe she was wearing a pretty dress, what about me? You know, and, or if we talked about going somewhere, what about me? Or if we got you know, some crackers out of the closet, what about me? It was really annoying, but you know, he, was, he was always kind of this tender-hearted worrier, and he, was just, he just felt like he was going to be left out, like people weren't going to see that he was there, um, left out of the fun or the food or whatever it may be. You know, he just didn't want to be forgotten. And Paul's greetings and commendations, I think, are just a great reminder that God remembers us and all the work that we do for him. God saw fit to include the names of these people in scripture as a testimony, those who had a part in the gospel of his son, however big or small. Jesus says in Matthew 10:42 that even if we give a cup of cold water to one of his disciples, we will not lose our reward. But since we don't work for human approval or for worldly treasures, um, it's good to be reminded now and then that God does not overlook us. Uh, he remembers the hours we spent teaching our children his word, even though they may have walked away from him. Uh, he remembers the way that we've labored in ministry only to get disheartened by conflict. Uh, he remembers the times we spent hours on the phone comforting someone. He remembers the meals you take to people when you don't have the time, the Operation Christmas Child box that you carefully filled, the prayers you've prayed, and the tears that you have cried for others. Um, God has not forgotten you. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. So if Paul, is, who is human, remembers these folks, um, how much more does our Heavenly Father, who loves us, who knows the number of hairs on our head, take notice of what we do out of love for him? So how does the truth that, that God doesn't forget you and what you do for him encourage you to do even more for him every day? Who might you need to remember or appreciate this week and what can you do to assist those who serve the gospel in our church like others assisted Paul? Well, it seems very fitting to end our study uh, in Romans with a doxology. Um, doxology means a word that gives glory to God. And Paul 
closes his letter this way by speaking of the gospel and God's glory. And um, these verses that we're going to close with really mirror a lot of what he mentioned in our very opening chapter of Romans. Um, But the important thing is that Paul wants us to know is that God is able to establish us in the gospel. He's able to set our feet on solid ground through it, grounded so that we're not afraid, so that we're aren't, we aren't shaken by every wind of teaching, you know, that blows our way, that, or shaken by the trials of life um, that come our way. God is able to strengthen us through the gospel as we continually look to him. And that's why the gospel must always be before us. As Buster says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel, if you'll recall, is the power of God. So let me read our closing doxology. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. And I thought we could say this last phrase together after the count of two. One, two, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Father, all glory to you. All glory to you for just patiently taking us through your word these past eight weeks. All glory to you for the work that you've been doing in our lives. All glory to you, Lord, for loving us so much to send your son that whoever believes in him won't face eternity apart from you, but have everlasting life. Thank you for your rich and precious promises, which we cling to. Thank you for the the fact that we can look to you in every circumstance, in everything that might come our way. Thank you that we never need to be afraid. Thank you, Lord, that you are our Father. And we just offer ourselves to you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.